Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontiers, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. America's wanted this war for years. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Hello, I am Brian, formal version. Today's episode is Violence Breeds Violence, our thematic analysis on 2013's Metal Gear Rising Revengeance. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes. We know who Meryl marries. We know the fate of Master Kazuhira Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. I do have one announcement up top, though anyone who is on the Patreon or follows our Twitters will probably know this by now. I am going to be joining the Nauticast podcast, which is a Song of Ice and Fire reread podcast with my friend Emmett Booth. As you may know from this podcast, I love A Song of Ice and Fire, and to a lesser degree, it's TV show Game of Thrones, um, and it's been a part of our analysis all the way through our coverage of Metal Gear games, which is probably not by accident, but I won't belabor that point here. Anyways, uh, in the process of this, I am going to be committing pretty much full time to that podcast, so I did want to lay out what's going to be happening here at Podcast Sands Frontiers. We will continue uh, with the Metal Gear series and wrap up with Metal Gear Solid V, which will be the end of our Metal Gear Solid coverage as it is the last game in the franchise. Afterwards, we will also probably do a couple episodes wrapping up our coverage of the games, um, maybe laying out the timeline in full and just maybe what we've learned over the course of doing this. After that, we will probably put the podcast on a hiatus until I adjust to my new role and we see... Um, how much we can do under the Podcast Sounds Frontiers banner. We've discussed doing streams or possibly covering other games, ones we've mentioned a lot on this podcast, whether it's Kodor, Hitman, Halo, um, but we, we really don't know. But the Podcast Sounds Frontiers meme will endure. Um, we'll keep it live for a while, and we also hope to do some other stuff. And especially if another Metal Gear Solid title or the film actually comes out, um, we will be here covering that as well. Oh, and one last thing, um, the Patreon that's been supporting this podcast, patreon.com slash bomb, will be rebranded to uh, my brother, my captain, my podcast, my Lord of the Rings uh, podcast, um, as that will still continue going uh, well after uh, we finish uh, this podcast. Uh, if you're supporting uh, my Patreon for the Metal Gear side, um, I would just ask or, you know, plead, uh, you still remain a patron uh, through August because um, that will help support us getting these podcast episodes wrapped up and out there. Um, and then once we go on hiatus, we're going to be switching to the Lord of the Rings only branding, at which point, if you're no longer interested, um, you can, you know, withdraw your patronage and, you know, do whatever. Buy a pack of cigarettes or like, six cigarettes or something like that. Solid Snake would approve.
So this game's setting, not unlike MGS4, are many, as Raiden tracks his enemies across the globe. Also like MGS4, this game's first setting is not entirely specific. Raiden is providing security for PM Namani in an undisclosed African nation. All we're really told about it is that Maverick, Raiden's PMC, was hired to provide security and support the nation as it rebuilds following a long civil war. As we described with the heads-up display, this game very smartly starts you off in an old headspace in the trappings of Metal Gear Solid 4 for the prologue before becoming its own thing with the first chapter. And not to orientalize Africa as a singular monolith, but it's been home to civil wars and internal conflicts for centuries now, going back to the slave trade and the Atlantic Passage through proxy wars and colonial liberation struggles following World War II. These conflicts are ongoing. As of 2018, there are currently 21 civil wars in process. I don't think we can give a proper recap of all that's occurred on the continent, even in this last half century, in part because it's too much, and I also don't feel confident leaning on a lot of the readily available information, which is generally chauvinist and very Western capitalist in nature. I want to say real quick, too, it's important. I think in this instance, it's okay to orientalize Africa because the game does that. Like, they probably intelligently don't. Nemani is not the prime minister of any specific country. It's literally, I think, in the wiki, it's Nemani's country in Africa. Like, there's just, it's just African country, mm-hmm. which I think is fine for this specific because I don't think you really need to. I mean, they could have just made up a name, but I, I don't know. I feel like it, that, that's treading weird ground with Japanese people. I don't know if, how they would do it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, uh, it's not going to be Wakanda or anything, but I think it also, it works and it works because they're not like specifically doing anything with the politics or culture yeah. specifically. Um, it's just like, this needs to be a setting to kind of kick off everything else. And, you know, you can have your own critiques about using Africa in that sense, but I think because they're not really engaging with it much more than a setting, um, it helps avoid like orientalizing it in a way, um, that we often see in like kind of Western media. Mm. Um, I don't, I don't know. Is Platinum Games a fully Western company? No. Or it's yeah, it's fully used. That's that's what I'm, uh, I said. That, yeah, that's Japanese. That's a Japanese company. Yeah, it's a Japanese company. Yeah, yeah. So no, I think you're like spot on with uh, that comment. At the very least, I'd recommend looking into the Somali Civil War, the Rwandan genocide in 1994 that saw the murder of 800,000 Tutsis, and the Second Congo War, aka the Great African War, which remains the deadliest conflict since World War II, with 5.4 million deaths and another two million displaced. Many of these deaths were a result of malnutrition and disease occurring well after official ceasefires were made. Just want to reiterate that all of these are made infinitely worse due to the centuries of colonialism and chattel inflicted on the peoples of Africa by the U.S. and Europe. And perhaps for those reasons, they aren't covered as much in media, aren't taught in schools, and are just generally unknowns to your average American. All that grimness aside, it's also worth highlighting the Metal Gear history with African conflicts. Frank Yeager, Naomi Hunter, and Raiden Raiden himself are all child victims of war in Africa and would become soldiers of fortune in part due to what happened to them while on the continent. Solidus was a key player in the Liberian Civil War, as we learned in MGS2, and even Amanda from Peace Walker left Mother Base before its destruction to go fight over in the Congo. 
And the original Metal Gear on MSX takes place in Outer Heaven, which at the time was located in the southern part of the African continent. We will obviously be returning to Africa in our Metal Gear Solid V coverage, as it's one of the main theaters of war, and it will allow us to dive into specific conflicts between tribes and nations with a little more focus. We'll also be able to untangle the proxy wars and how the CIA and USSR factored into those struggles. The problem, I think, yeah, also is that um, you can you can have a specific setting for V, I think. You can't do that for MGR because MGR is set in the future. So I, I feel like that's <laughs> like V is set like it's during a specific time frame when there were specific conflicts going on. So you can do something with that and have that mm-hmm. weave into the Metal Gear story and, and comment on like actual historical events. Whereas with MGR, it's just like, yeah. If they put if they put it in let's say Kenya, I think it would be offensive to say that Kenya will be undergoing civil war in five years. That's like okay, yeah. I know it's an alternate history thing, but Metal Gear has, has staked so much of its identity on retelling actual historical events, and I think people would take that seriously. So it's just it's just the best idea. It's just the best play, way to do it. And I think that's just in line with what they did with Metal Gear Solid Four too, mm-hmm. uh, making a 2014 set game in 2008. Um, like you could reasonably presume we would still be at war in the Middle East, but then like um, whatever they're doing in Eastern Europe, I mean, now you could say that's like Ukraine or something. Yeah. And, you know, what's happening in South America is Venezuela, whatever you want to do. But by keeping it abstract, it gives it a for games that are set in the near future. It gives it a, at least somewhat of a timeless quality or it doesn't tie it to any one specific thing that makes you question what the game is actually doing in those settings. Um but yeah, I think I think that's one of the fun parts of the Metal Gear series generally is all the like prequel or historical games are like knee deep in our real world history. And then everything that's like modern day or near future is just kind of an extrapolation, but without like a lot of the specifics. So they don't like tie themselves into any holes or anything. Mm-hmm. Leaving Africa, the story next turns to the Republic of Abkhazia, which is a country I barely knew existed. It's a de facto state, an autonomous region considered, by the West, a part of the country Georgia on the eastern coast of the Black Sea. It's a small country, less than 10 square kilometers, and a population under 250,000. Abkhazia is recognized as a state by what the West would call quote-unquote enemy states, like Russia, Venezuela, Syria, while the UN and Georgian government consider it part of its country. It was part of slash adjacent to Soviet Russia and the Georgian Abkhazian conflict of 1992 to 1993 includes an officially recognized ethnic cleansing of Georgians in Abkhazia as those who would not be displaced out of the country were killed. Sukhumi, the capital city, was held by the Georgian government until the separatists took took it with help from Russian air power, and eventually Russia would broker a ceasefire that saw Georgia pull out all its troops. This is all just the biggest overview, and I can't claim to have any expertise beyond research I did for this episode. But these hotly contested, conflict-ridden war zones to start the game are not an accident, as these sort of war crime hotbeds have long been discussed in the Metal Gear saga. So many of our characters, including in this game, are war orphans, kids who became unmoored from life because of daily war, ethnic cleansing, and genocides they endured. This applies to Raiden and various snakes as much as it does to their enemies, thinking of the Beauty and the Beast Corps here specifically. Anything on Abkhazia from you? 
Not really. I mean, I think there's it falls into some of the same traps we just talked about. But because I think it's, I don't know, I, you either have to moor it completely in real world politics or not at all. And I feel like this is the only place in this game where it's a little between. I don't know if I like it. Mm-hmm. I would say this and Pakistan specifically mm-hmm. are probably the closest I get to like doing real world politics in there. Um, there's some of it that we're going to talk about next in Mexico and Denver, but it's like it's like abstract enough theme wise where it's not like pinning it down to very specific um, mm-hmm. politics or conflicts. And the, the Pakistan, I think, has the um, just covered a bit by just being at a U.S. military base. That's like anything. That's not if anything it reflects it reflects on the U.S. more than Pakistan. And all the actors in what everything that's going on over there um, are American in nature, whether it's a world marshal, Raiden, um, Desperado, um, all the like players in what's going on in Pakistan almost have nothing to do with Pakistan. Um, so that helps a lot. Well, Raiden is an African like Steve Nash. <laughs> yes, yes, correct, correct. Guadalajara, Mexico is next, and this is where Raiden meets George and learns of Desperado's child trafficking operation. In our real world, Guadalajara was at the center of a massive child trafficking operation that was uncovered in January 2012, about a year before this game's release. Included in this bust was a revelation that the cartel working out of Jalisco had been operating back since the 1980s and essentially forcing or outright stealing babies from poor mothers to ship off to other countries. The trafficking ring was aided by officials. A prominent lawyer, Carlos Lopez Valenzuela, worked in the private adoption industry and boasted a track record of Mexican-born babies being adopted in Ireland and the U.S., And lo and behold, the U.S.-implicated adoption agency, Adoption Alliance, that worked with Lopez, is based out of Colorado, the next spot on our Revengeance roadmap. Denver and its airport are a hotbed for human trafficking. Centrally located in the U.S. with a heavy immigrant population sparsely spread outside the Denver city limits and highways and truck routes branching off to every corner of the United States. Finding stats on this was hard in terms of how current the data is and knowing that all numbers are likely underreported. But as of 2010, there were about 2.5 million victims of immigrant human trafficking within the U.S. And in Colorado itself, there were 137 specific cases of human trafficking in 2021, and again, that's likely underreported. But human trafficking, especially within U.S. borders, cannot be divorced from the heavily militarized immigration apparatus and border state, which grew monstrously after 9-11. 
And by starting out in countries in Africa and the Soviet veil, this story offers a keen insight into the process by which U.S. imperialism creates a desperate and exploitable class of labor. Global South countries are destroyed by Western imperialism, often directly as a result of war and colonialism, but also indirectly via climate change, which makes land unusable or worsens the impacts of natural disasters. The victims then often are forced to leave their country, perhaps for some land of opportunity, but the cruelty of the U.S. doesn't stay behind in their home countries. A narrow and Byzantine immigration process awaits, one that only a few lucky winners ever get through, and the odds get worse if you are from a non-white country or are yourself non-white. And this creates a permanent class of would-be immigrants or refugees struggling to get through. Their existence becomes highly stipulated on their ability to perform labor and generate value to the U.S. economy. And surely no one listening to this needs to be told that the U.S. isn't really open-handed with welcoming immigrants and refugees, either through the actual process or the culture and discourse around it. For those who have no shot of graduating through the immigration or refugee processes, other alternatives are taken. This is where cartels, aided by official U.S. institutions, get into the game. They force fleeing persons to empty their wallets for them, and those that can afford the passage fee can make it up in work, and often sex work at that, especially amongst marginalized genders. And thus, the victims of our belligerent imperialism become victims of our own immigration apparatus, and if they are lucky enough to get through that and establish a life, well, they are just victim to the U.S.'s social safety net and domestic institutions. In order to, quote-unquote, not rock the boat and draw attention from the U.S. state, these people become less likely to unionize because that could be used against them. They're basically walking the tightest rope for being deported, and this is the result of that. I want to say real quick, uh, another uh, way, it's not as though um, that cartel exploitation is only affecting, like, most destitutely poor. It affects uh, Cuban baseball players who try to come over here and have to give up 20 to 25 percent of their salaries like like Yasiel Puig did mm-hmm. that you remember that story yeah I sure do yeah that he had he owed almost a quarter of his contract to his quote-unquote agent who was just a cartel guy who helped smuggle him here mm-hmm. that's pretty fucked up that's a lot of money yeah if you're interested uh, this is to you the listener out there there's a couple of good books and I don't have the titles off my head but like well there's there's one good book friend <laughs> uh, the bible <laughs> uh <laughs> Like, there's a long history of how, like, colonialism has manifested itself in the baseball recruiting process in Latin America. I know um, a lot of the writers over at Baseball Prospectus have kind of covered this in the last five to seven years. Um, But it's really exploited. They exploit the people of these countries, especially because a lot of them are kids. Mm -hmm. And with the way, like, records are kept, sometimes they're being treated as they're 18 or older when they're very much not. Um, And then they basically... uh, you know, kind of bribe families or you no know, communities to give up these kids to bring into America. And very little goes back into the communities from which they're uh, pulling these kids from. So mm-hmm. it, it shouldn't surprise anyone that baseball has a sordid history with its uh, exploits into Latin America. And then, you know, when uh, when these players come over, they get paid. It's getting it got uh, this most recent lockout health, but they get paid like like twelve thousand dollars a year or some mm-hmm. ridiculously mm-hmm. low salary. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they have to wait, like the way baseball works, they have to wait, you know, maybe six to eight years to get like a real payday. Uh, and then a lot of that ends up just being like flowed back towards their home countries because they have families to support who were not getting material aid from these teams giving up these kids in the first place. So mm-hmm. uh, not not great. Not great, Bob. Kids are oftentimes, uh, you know, working age who, if they hadn't left, would be supporting their families in some way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. One of the way U.S. immigrants can, quote-unquote, do good in the name of the American project is to join the military, though, and Revengeance decides to twist that theme for this new kind of business, the PMC. Why wait for these children to be of enlisting age when you can harvest their organs before crossing the border, subject them to war crime training virtually, and then throw them into a cyborg chassis and ship them off to the next global South country to imperil? Like, say, Pakistan, the last major setting in Metal Gear Rising. Pakistan has always been at the heart of colonial struggle, from the British rule of India and the horrendous war crimes and murders that occurred under partition. Given the U.S.'s diplomatic ties with India's, it has always taken a less-than-favorable stance with Pakistan, and one that's gotten worse in light of the war on terror. Yeah, not good. (laughs) No matter what Coca-Cola tries to tell you. Remember that ad? (laughs) Yes, I sure do. Yeah. God damn it. No, I mean, listen, for cynical, bloodthirsty advertisers, that's not the worst message they've ever put across, but certainly is lame. We might as well talk about Pakistan in the context of the war on terror, which is specifically how Metal Gear Rising engages with U.S. imperial apparatus, a prominent meme in Metal Gear games. Pakistan lives in this gray area in the war on terror, both as a staging ground for much of the U.S.'s military action into Afghanistan, but also as a place where al-Qaeda has operated out of, including Osama bin Laden. In a franchise that has made a lot of hay on a world without borders, the very real but also new and political borders that divide South Asia have created violence in its own right. The borders themselves are the violence. Just a quick fact sheet on Pakistan, since it gets even less coverage than Iraq and Afghanistan in terms of its war on terror counterparts, and even those have gotten lesser and lesser media attention in the last decade. There have been As reported, and these are probably underreported, 65 to 83,000 total direct deaths, meaning directs due to conflicts that does not include malnutrition, famine, hunger, poverty, etc. 23,000 of those are civilians, and 150 or so journalists and humanitarian aid workers have lost their lives in the country. 
There have been about 130,000 Pakistani refugees created by the conflicts. Um, and within the country itself, about 170,000 people have been displaced, with 80,000 having sought uh, asylum elsewhere outside of the borders of Pakistan, Afghanistan, etc. In addition to all that, 1.3 million Afghani refugees have now been relocated into Pakistan, uh, which puts even further stress on its institutions and social safety net. And in total, um, over $150 billion in economic losses for the country, which I'm not saying as a capitalist, but rather that's money that couldn't go towards actually rebuilding infrastructure, building hospitals, and basically providing food, shelter for all these refugees and people displaced by war. Money can't buy happiness, but it can't buy food. Mm -hmm. It sure can. All of this is just the tip of the iceberg, the effects war has on a population psyche, the way it strains on material conditions, and how it drafts young bodies into the war mill on both sides, uh, you know, due to radicalization and opportunity can't really be uh, properly stated. There's no victory, no defeat. That's old Metal Gear hat, though. This game is set after the events of MGS4, but the ground zeroes for this game's imperialist takes is not really the Guns of the Patriots incident or Big Shell before it, but 9-11, the real thing that actually happened. <laughs> Trying to mesh the two timelines, our real 9-11 one and the MGS one, is a little bit messy, but I think you can read this through thematically. After the events of 9-11 and then later Big Shell, we saw an expansion of PMC activity over the world, which the MGS games cover. But now 17 years post 9-11, war has become routine. I think it also tracks that, like, look, look how insane our world became after 9-11. Imagine if there were two of them, basically. Mm -hmm. It would just, like, Twice accelerate. Yeah, it, it would. And also if, if Metal Gears existed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because Metal Gear is almost now, especially how MGS4 um, and Onward have made them unmanned vehicles, um, almost become a stand-in for drone warfare, even though I don't think that was the specific goal. But I think it kind of lines up that way nonetheless. What Armstrong, Sundowner, and World Marshal are trying to do is give the war on terror a kick in the ass. The country has settled into a new normal, where the military-industrial complex and politicians can continue to grow fat on existing conflicts, mostly of the never-ending kind. But lest we forget, the immediate aftermath of 9-11 included a massive expansion of the military and surveillance state, lumping more power onto the executive and expanding its ability to wage war, the rest uh, restrict civil rights, and create new institutions like the Department of Homeland Security and ICE to enforce fascism at the border and on its own citizens. This allowed a whole new generation of warmongers and businessmen to get rich and seize even more levers of power within the U.S. government. And perhaps most of all, it got the American people behind it, giving them a chance to share in the bloodlust. Even an unsuccessful attack is enough to reinvigorate all that as we see in this game. Our institutions, and people as informed by our mass media, are more than happy to seize any opportunity to give war a chance, or the same war another chance, despite how well-cataloged its failures are. And this isn't far off from the real world. Perhaps the only good thing Mr. Joe Biden has done is the withdrawal from Afghanistan, even though that was kind of botched in its own right, and that was the one thing that the media actually found their voice to call out Joe Biden for, for not wanting to continue a forever occupation there, for not being more of a warmonger. 
even though the U.S. occupation there was a failure, uh, just like every other imperial or colonial inquest into Afghanistan has been, the U.S. media believed we should still be there killing people and just being a bad force uh, in the region. That's quitting. You can't quit. Yeah. Uh, more on Afghanistan in a bit, I would say. Yeah, I would say we're going to get quite a bit into Afghanistan in our final game. Yeah, I didn't even really think about that. That there are some there is some crossover politically with this game and V, just a little bit, a little bit. But I think it's definitely like I think it's there. I don't think it's just necessarily us reading into it. But well, I think it's there specifically because those are those are two areas of the world most consistently and horrifically colonialized by like the United States. So mm-hmm. I think yes. that's, that's sort of, that's probably where the correlation comes. I, I doubt Kojima was like, Ooh, I should do stuff in Afghanistan because they kind of obliquely reference it. And in this game, I didn't write. <laughs> right. I think it's more just like, where, where can I go? That's that the has been, where can I go in that in the eighties was being destroyed by us, by us colonialism. And then MGR was like, where can we go in the 2010s that's being destroyed by us colonialism? And there's two answers. They're, they're the same answers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Revengeance paints the U.S. in all its iterations very cynically here, and I do think that's further well explained by the cyborg police in Denver. Fascism is a colonial project turned inwards, and in light of 9-11, we've seen how excessive military spending sluices down into local police forces, leading to that same military might being aimed at the country's own citizens. And yet somehow it's unable to stop a, sh- a single shooter despite all the technology and weaponry they have. They did stop the guy who was going to shoot up the Amazon warehouse. Well, I wonder, I wonder why that place was protected, huh? Yeah, that FBI agent was like, hold on a second here. <laughs> With the cyborg police, constant drone coverage, and the screens and PAs featuring Sam and Sundowner haranguing you throughout Denver, the surveillance and carceral state is explicitly worn on its sleeves, a synecdoche of America writ large. The age of heroes is dead. The age of terror is reborn. Yeah, I that was the thing. I mean, I'm not going to say even in when did I play this? I played this in like late 2013. So like I I was 24. So like I still politically knew what I was doing, but that really stood out to me immediately the first time through. Was like, well, there's a lot of cops in America here. <laughs> a lot of a lot of shit going on. And yeah, I, I think um one of the things I was thinking about this because I I was watching some stuff for the original to Max Payne games, and uh, I may play, replay Max Payne 2 at some point. And I was thinking about, I mean, Sam Lake is, is European Kojima in many ways. They're friends. Uh, Sam, I mean, Sam Lake's in, um, in Death Stranding. But, like, it Sam sure Lake's is. definitely definitely inspired by Kojima a lot, but they also have, like, I think they have very similar musical tastes, and they're both big David Lynch guys. Uh, I mean, Sam Lake is like a David Lynch, like, it's almost like shocking how well, well he apes him mm-hmm. but i think one other thing they have in common and i i wonder if they get this from lynch maybe or just you know not being americans is that they're two not americans who make games about about and set in america a lot and it's very interesting to look i, I have a i have a weird fascination with that kind of media with like how do other people and other cultures how does it like what are their opinions of America reflect back at us about how we are perceived? Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's a coincidence that for the most part, both of these people, both of these creators versions of America are hellish nightmare scapes, like just completely Kojima's is a completely overrun by the military industrial complex, just like violent bully, just extremely cynical, bloodthirsty monster. And the Sam Lake one is like literally a nightmare. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's nothing, and I think that's that's an interesting way to frame 
Because V, I think, is is sort of uh, America in V is is a phantom. Like it's it's less. I think there's less direct. Like this game and and Peace Walker in particular are directly grappling with like the CIA and the uh, just the entire war on terror, entire American political machine, American businesses and politicians. Yeah, yeah. that V doesn't have much of that really. It's it's more. If anything, it grapples more with the USSR's complicity and, and, and that sort of, especially 80s USSR, like they're just their spiraling colonial project. But like America is just also there. And I think that's interesting to reflect back on because I don't think V doesn't have anything set in America, does it? No. No, um, not at all. I mean, unless you want to consider um, like uh, the Ground Zeroes uh, Camp Omega yeah, that's on yeah. Cuban borders, but America's backyard. Yeah, very exactly, very deliberate. I think because I think that's also in line with the game's themes. Because Cullface talks about how it's not a nation we inhabit, but a language. And what language is that? Yeah, hmm. yeah. So, but I, I think you're absolutely right that America is a phantom. And I've started doing the research, like when we get especially into the Africa stuff, and like I imagine a lot of pl- people who played MGSV, and when they're talking about like the MLPA um, and the various factions in Africa, like. They don't really have any historical knowledge about that, but there was definitely a U.S. back faction um, that's uh, set in that game setting, which we'll save for that game. But yeah, and then obviously there's stuff uh, you know with the Mujahideen that's happening in Afghanistan, but it's never really worn on its sleeves. Like you don't have like a bunch of American flags and all that stuff like pointing the way for you. No, you get like the um, what's the the rocket launcher they send over. Uh, the honeybee or the honeybee, yeah. That that was. I think they explicitly mentioned the CIA, but it's it's not it's not an active like it's not like an extremely aggressive factor in the game. Mm-hmm. Like they're not like they're not like a, an actor. There's nobody. There's no like American character you can be like. This is the person who was. I guess zero, but zero's not in the game. So and he's also British. But I think you're right. I think he uh, America is almost. Uh, but he. But I mean, at this point, he's been working for American. America. Yeah, for. Two decades at least. Yeah, for like um, the CIA. So, but I think it's uh, it's almost like what we were saying about Zero when we talked about um, the previous games. Is he's a structuring absence, and I feel like uh, America is kind of a structuring absence in um, what's going on in uh, MGSV, and I think that might also be the point because even though like America isn't let's say explicitly involved in this, like the they hang over everything that's happening and nothing that's happening in the game would be occurring without the U S military generally doing what it's done over the centuries or the last half century or whatever.
MGR doesn't quite lean as hard on the pacifism thing, although there are options mm -hmm. with a wooden sword and fights you can avoid. And that's fine. I don't think every game has to necessarily nail all the themes and tricks of previous games, especially when this one is specifically working outside of the bounds of the Solid series, aggressively so even. The game still finds its moments to make you question what you are doing, a chance to become violently ill over the carnage you inflict. Literally so, as when Sam gets on those speakers and tells Jack to listen to the nanomachines, and he taps into the police target targeting him. They're all scared, victims of war and uh, victims of an indifferent government in their own right. There's obviously no love for cops here, but it is acknowledging that material conditions which make military and law enforcement appealing options in the first place. And it's it's reflecting the fact that the, the thing that, that people who support police in this country never want to admit that they are human beings. Like, mm -hmm. like th this idea that like somehow any any cop who makes a mistake it's just a completely isolated incident because there have been there have been plenty of these shootings that were earnest mistakes like somebody most i mean most of them are just the cops being violent thugs but there are a few where a person shoots the wrong like they're they think they are they actually are being attacked and they shoot the wrong person or they accidentally i mean there was the one where the, the cop thought she was using a taser which is hilariously stupid but i believe that that was a mistake because the cops are stupid but um <laughs> But like it's this idea that like that, that police like the fact that all police are fallible humans is not how not somehow part of the problem, and that's that it's just like ah oh, what what can you do? That's that's like a weird. That's always been one of the weirdest um, parts of of like the the cop worship in this country. It's this mm -hmm. idea that like like they are people. They make mistakes, and it's I don't know. That's I think that that's done pretty well. I also wanted to say that um. I think this game making you do that stuff, like making a Raiden's character is like a violent, crazy thug. Like that's I mean, he's like bloodthirsty. He's he loves war, but I think actually forcing you to do it is is honestly kind of a more effective uh, argument for pacifism. Like it, it it it's maybe defanged a little bit by the fact that right after that you're just cutting guys in half again. And you're like, yeah, cool, but. <laughs> But I don't know. I think if you really, I mean, it's the, the game is not. It's it's it is not pulling any punches with the violence like that. That is, but it's part of the game. That is part of the story. Is that it's sort of it's Raiden is a, is a heroic character, but he's a heroic character who is fully embracing just like the most bloodthirsty primal parts of his psyche to do so. And like, it's not good. The game does not think that's healthy. No, no, not at all. It thinks all. it's cool. But it doesn't think it's healthy. Yeah. Um, the propensity for violence in this game isn't isn't an afterthought or just a function of the gameplay, but they legitimately talk about it several times in the game. Um, so it's not something like Uncharted where you have, you know, sequences where you blow away 10,000 people, but you just never comment on it or don't discuss the violence. Um, even when this game is violence, it's generally still talking about the violence you're doing, um, criticizing it or... Uh, pointing out how empty it might be or something like that. All this carries on the meme of the soldier as a pitiable figure once again. Not that the soldier is blameless or should be absolved of the war crimes, but that it is a cog in a much larger machine that's sucking up human bodies to mutilate and disassemble. This game's horrific twist, pulling back to Grey Fox from MGS1, is that the mutilation and disassembly need not be the end of the human body's usage. 
With some nano machines and cyborg grafting, that same body can be redeployed back into war zones that destroyed it in the first place. Like with SOP and MGS4, we see Raiden get violently ill and incapable of action when confronted with his past atrocities, when the nano machines are turned off and he's actually allowed to experience the battlefield. He can barely walk, the game's heads-up display is all messed up, and the screen is staticky and unfocused. As best as the game can, the horror and fog of war is being relayed to the player. The role of Sam in all this doesn't end there. When Raiden cuts him down at the end, the player realizes he was more man than machine, not another drone for the war machine like every enemy before or after. It serves narrative purpose, of course. Sam's humanity need be established here so that the final moments with the sword and blade wolf don't ring hollow. But it also offers us hope, something Metal Gear loves doing. Raiden stopping Armstrong doesn't actually derail his plan. Sure, the senator can't take the presidency, but the memes will do their job. America will be sucked back into the depths of the war war on terror, and the blood god will get the blood he greedily demands. Armstrong even names Jack his successor of sorts. This is typical for Metal Gear Solid games. The events and fallouts of these stories are too big for any one snake or jack to stop. Often, they play a significant role in bringing them about. But it's the little existential wins along the way that make it worthwhile. The no-chance-no-choice moments where Raiden does defeat Armstrong in combat, or shuts down Sundowner for good, or saves George from his traffickers, and of course, all the kids Raiden and Doctor save in the end. And I think there's a uh, running theme in this series that uh, it didn't really coalesce until around this time, but the idea that there's always a snake and a boss, but most of the time, whoever defeats the boss, whatever snake defeats the boss becomes a boss. Like the boss did, big boss did, solid snake kind of did. I don't, that's a little less, that's a little less um, obvious, but Ocelot became a boss. Like they all sort of like you trying to force your worldview upon the world will make you into a villain to somebody and there will be somebody there to take you down. And I'd like that it doesn't implies that Raiden sort of breaks that like Raiden doesn't have any. It's almost like he's almost too pure. He has no ambition. He doesn't. He's the only major character. I think who doesn't care about. Like what happens? I don't want to say doesn't care what happens to the world. Doesn't care about like if their vision of the world is implemented. He doesn't give a shit. He's just mm-hmm. here to kill kill bad people, and that like makes him kind of a pure hero almost. Um, he's lightning. He's the Ram transformed, as we yeah. all like. To, we all love to quote. But like, um, it paints him more as like a force of nature than like a, a character with like a, with like goals. Mm-hmm. Which I love. You said Solid Snake kind of is a little different. I think Solid Snake is also doing the Raiden thing where he's trying to break that cycle. Yeah. Um, so when he beats Liquid, he doesn't surpass Liquid, but then Liquid comes back. Um, and then, you know, when he, when he finally defeats Liquid Ocelot, that's kind of ending the cycle of there must be one snake and one boss. Ocelot also breaks the cycle. I mean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was, his a, entire, that was like his entire character arc. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ocelot, the true hero of Metal Gear. You're hearing it more and more. Um <laughs> I wonder because I watched a video about this, and I I, I think I, I kind of agree with the idea that like well there's there's a we didn't talk about this in four there's there's a weird line in four that I think a lot of people picked up on which is where he, when Ocelot is talking about turning the world into what it turns into into just like the old, like when he when he gives the the 
basically he just gives Armstrong's entire speech for him mm-hmm, mm-hmm. about the world becoming the, the strong, surviving, you know, man eat man. He, he talks about that and then he says, our father's will is done. I was like, that was not Big Boss's will. Who are you talking about? <laughs> and this video went into uh, a nice, again, a nice argument. He may have been talking about the sorrow. Ooh, ooh, that's interesting. Yeah, which would work because that would be that'd be perfect if his two parents are sort of the yin and yang of Metal Gear. Where like because the boss is, I would say the ultimate pacifist in Metal Gear. Like the ultimate, like her ideology is what inspires boss and big boss and Snake indirectly mm-hmm. to be like these forces for good. Like she's the ultimate good in Metal Gear, the the ultimate selfless figure, the ultimate like gave herself up completely for others their entire life. That was her entire character arc. Whereas with Sorrow, we don't really know like what his care, what, what his motivations are. I think it would fit if his motivations would just like the, the inverse of that, like ultimate selfless selfishness, ultimate like looking after you. I don't know. I don't think we know enough about him for that to work, but I think that would be fun. This, this video also gave me the uh, interesting idea of, because Ocelot, obviously, through the whole series, is planning everything mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that he's involved in. What if he could plan everything because he had psychic abilities? Ooh. I mean, that would at least uh, augment like the whole like psychotherapy that he goes yeah. to be Liquid Ocelot in the first place. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's interesting. Um, just want to mention that. I have another thing to say about Armstrong, but we'll finish up here with this yeah, real yeah. quick. While other Metal Gear games have preached pacifism and rewarded the player thusly, this game embraces direct action more passionately than the solid titles. Revenge, vengeance. Sometimes you you do have to cut shit into a million pieces, and this is the one game that rewards you for that instead of punishing you. In its overtness and over-the-top nature, that's somehow distinct from the solid titles overt nature, this game makes no illusions about its villains being villains and that they may just need their heads removed. Molding Armstrong and Sundowner and the like around various War on Terror actors just makes that all that easier to swallow. Yeah, and I mean, Armstrong's speech is also, like, not really even hiding the fact that it basically is post-Reagan Republican ideology. Like, that's their ideology of just, like, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. cutting all social, the entire social safety net, cutting out all federal programs, and just allowing people to die. Like, like that, that's the point, like resource, just imagine resource scarcity. Like we must destroy, like there's no, they, they hide behind it. Some of them, but like a great example is if you're denying trans care, uh, care for trans children and trans adults, and you're basically a, like completely, uh, if you're making all trans care illegal, the end goal of that is killing trans, all trans people, like, or removing them. And like that's you can't pretend that that's not what the goal is, but they do. They pretend that it's no. There's no coherency to it. And Armstrong is kind of a refreshing character. He just plainly says what his goal is. Like, no, I'm I want to kill poor people. I want all poor people to die. So it it feels good. Like it feels fitting that you don't arrest him and send him to jail. You just cut his fucking heart out, which is what he deserves. Like that. That's a good feeling to me. I, I enjoy that. You said direct action. <laughs> I'm directly going to fucking kill you. Yeah, no, I kind of lifted that from something you talked about a little bit earlier or you wrote in one of our documents a little ago. But um, I, I think it works as a nice kind of just companion piece to everything the solid games are doing, especially when um, and not that they knew MGSV was going to be what MGSV is. Mm-hmm. But like that game is like 
the ultimate stealth and pacifist gameplay if you want it to be. Um, like there's just so many options for it. So giving us something that's radically different, but still feels of a piece, I think really works for this game. It is a power fantasy too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Imagine if you could cut out Ted Cruz's heart. Oh God, I would play that game all the time. Yeah. Now I will. Well, I would if, you know, Revengeance was easy to play um, mm-hmm. at most places. I'm going to have to like buy an Xbox 360 version of the disc to actually play I have a game one. at this point. You sure do. I love Revengeance. It's different. It's 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 a little weird little stepchild of the rest of the series, but I have such a fond, just fond, like I've only played it, I think, two times, but I just have fond. It, no other game has ever been made that is like Revengeance. No other game will ever be like Revengeance. It is a singular experience. Yeah. And um, I'm the one who's coming to it for the first time. And um, part of the reason some of these episodes have been shorter has been I haven't had like decades of time to think about this game. Like I have, you know, the previous Metal Gear titles. It's also it's like even it's less subtle than Metal Gear, which is a hilarious <laughs> sentence, but it is. Yeah. <laughs> Famously subtle series Metal Gear. But even then, there's less like there's there's less La- ba- layers, maybe. Or yeah, just there's like- less backstory. There's less like there's no codec things to sift through. That's where a lot of this stuff comes from is the 20 minute codec conversations early in the game. I was trying to do all the codec calls and calling people, but there just isn't, yeah, there isn't a, there. uh, you Not know, nothing, a paramed- paramedic telling you about movies or someone going like in depth on like Soviet weaponry, like N- mm. Nastasha. Um, it's not bad. It's just, that's not where the game was really trying to put its focus on in terms of and and I think they maybe they wanted to do that, but somebody had to be like, hey, we're not you're not taking fifteen minutes to fucking talk to people in this game you you got guys to cut you should, you got sword, yeah, and even uh a peace walker was starting to get to the point where a lot of coda conversations were just happening while you were infiltrating mm-hmm. or they were just completely in between missions as opposed to you know having to stop and talk to someone in the middle. Uh, infiltration and then with v you're going to get even less of that um it's either completely audio cassettes that you can listen to while doing or the codec calls tend to be much shorter while you're playing none of it Mm -hmm. stops gameplay and i think they were cognizant of that at this point i don't think anyone really wanted to stop gameplay for an audio only experience for a significant amount of time so I guess that wraps us up on Revengeance proper, though we at least will have one more episode on the game with our friend Mark Normandin, which will be kind of just open discussion and we'll just talk about various things, including the memes this game has made, um, as well as any potential sequel talk, um, as well as just talking about how fun it was to play because Brian and Mark both loved this game and really pushed me into long before I actually had to play it for the podcast. After that, we have just one more Metal Gear Solid title to go. Um, Our coverage of Metal Gear Solid V is our biggest project yet, and we hope to end our coverage of the franchise with some of our best stuff. So please stay tuned.
That's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is Podcast Sans Frontiers at gmail.com and at PodSansFront on Twitter and Instagram. You can support Podcast Sans Frontiers and all my other projects at patreon.com slash bomb. though reminder from up top that will be changing come late August. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering the Lord of the Rings over at my brother, my captain, my podcast. I'm still Brian, and America is still diseased. Rotten to the core. Fuck you, Armstrong. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember, the war still rages within. Looking down